You're listening to Plenary Session. Today on Plenary Session, we have two things in store for you. First, a discussion between myself and our resident blood man, Dr. Tom DeLore, about Andexanet Alpha, a new reversal agent for the DOAX. Andexanet Alpha was recently published in a New England Journal of Medicine study, and it's generating rave reviews online. Some have called it, quote, insult against empiricism, end quote, profoundly unimpressed, end quote. Or perhaps my favorite, uh, someone writes that I was chastised for saying, quote, this is not science. I will refine my terminology and say instead, this is not usable science. So stay tuned for this riveting discussion, but Dr. Tom DeLore is here to put things in, in true perspective. Next, I have an interview with Dr. John McConnell. John McConnell is the OHSU leader in health economics. He runs a center here, and he's a specialist in health services research and health economics, and he studies Medicaid, and he is going to talk about the fascinating things that we see across the nation in Medicaid policy. You won't want to miss it. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, Go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Thanks for doing this, Dr. DeLore. I am honored to be here as always, Dr. Prasad. You're back here on the center stage at Plenary Session HQ. So we're here to talk about, well, I should give you a brief introduction. Listeners may know you from a prior episode where we we talked at length, but this is Dr. Tom DeLore. He's the head of hematology here at OHSU, a practicing classical hematologist. That's right. Excellent. Nothing benign about it. (laughs) Nothing benign about Dr. DeLore. Nothing benign about Dr. DeLore. Dr. DeLore, we're here to talk about an article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled The Full Study Report of Andexanet Alpha for Bleeding Associated with Factor 10A Inhibitors, and you have a copy fresh off the printing press. Yes. This article has been called, this is what I was laughing about when you walked in, this article has been called, quote, an insult against empiricism, end quote, profoundly unimpressed, end quote, and an experimental chemical and then I think somebody even said something like, not really science or something like that. <laughs> not usable science. That's not right. usable science. So, well, uh, that's, that's, that's a harsh. Harsh, 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 harsh. Where do you want to start on this? So this is, an, I mean, this is a bigger topic that's, that's worth discussing, which is about maybe 10 years ago, we started to move from vitamin K antagonists to the direct thrombin inhibitors. They offer the virtue of not having to be monitored, which is good because yes. patients didn't like, you know, all the needle sticks that came with INR monitoring. Um, although maybe in some some documents that were leaked during litigation, maybe some of them could have been monitored. <laughs> but um, and but all these years, we really have not had a, a good reversal agent. By that, we mean a, a drug that can be administered for somebody who's on one of these drugs long term, but then comes in with some sort of acute bleeding episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the things we try are things like prothrombin concentrate, 
which is a blend of what four factors? Yeah, so it's it's all the vitamin K dependent proteins, factor two, seven, nine, and ten. Two, seven, nine, plus ten. protein C, protein S, and probably even protein Z. Protein Z. Yeah. Protein Z wasn't uh, wasn't in med school when uh, when <laughs> I took when I attended classes, so I'm not an expert. Because you're too busy learning the Krebs cycle. <laughs> I was too busy memorizing it. So. So what what would you like where would you like to start on this? Well, I I think you know reversal's been a classic dilemma and it was interesting that the direct oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, have always had that rap against them. They're not reversible. They're and, not reversible. You right. know, I want to start you on, you know, a DOAC. It's not reversible, Dr. Delory. Mm. And it's, it's kind of interesting if you step back. I think this brings up several issues. One, you know, not many of those drugs we use are, are actually reversible. You know, let's take aspirin. Aspirin's mm-hmm. been around for over 100 years. And, you know, we still don't know how to reverse it. There was... Uh, a couple of years ago, the famous PATCH trial, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. people with intracranial hemorrhage on aspirin were randomized to get platelets or not platelets. Makes sense. Aspirin's an antiplatelet agent. You give platelets, people do better. Yeah, aspirin's an irreversible right. inhibitor of uh, cyclooxygenase. Yes. And so it'll inhibit platelets. So if you give fresh platelets, yes. it should, they should do better. They'll they do better. And what's surprising in this trial is actually people did worse with mm. the uh, platelets. And so it's sort of interesting. Nobody thinks twice about using aspirin, but we don't know how to reverse it. And when you look at warfarin, that's always been the gold standard of the mm-hmm. reversible drug. You know, If somebody's on warfarin, you give them vitamin K, they reverse in a day. You give them FFP, they'll reverse in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you give them prothrombin complex concentrates, bam, the INR is better in 15 minutes. And it's interesting, if you actually look at meta-analysis of people with warfarin showing up with endocranial hemorrhage, getting PCCs, even in randomized trials and and observational studies, it's hard to prove that they actually do better. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll make the INR better, you'll make the labs better. And so it's interesting that even with our paradigm of reversibility, that's been hard to show. And, and so when you look at bleeding with direct oral anticoagulants, one of the good things is it does seem to be less than warfarin. Uh, right. Meta-analysis and now even really good unbiased observational studies really suggest that. And especially intracranial hemorrhage. They're a half to th- two-thirds less likely to occur if you're on a DOAC. So what I counsel my patients is if you're on a DOAC, you're just less likely to bleed. Now. Obviously, if you bleed, that's a bad thing, right. especially in your brain has a high mortality rate. <laughs> right. and we, we don't recommend it. Right. And But when you look, there's a nice article in JAMA last year that looked at a large database kept by the Heart Association of people with intracranial hemorrhage. And people who bled on the direct oral anticoagulants did worse than people just had spontaneous bleeds, but they actually did better than warfarin bleeds. Mm-hmm. Even this irreversible drug mm-hmm. compared to our reversible drug did did better as far as bleeding's concerned. And there's a lot of data that people don't do worse, or actually they do better if they bleed on DOAC. So that, that's kind of how I counsel my patients about the irreversibility things. You know, we've used Fondaparinux for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. We have no idea how to reverse it. Mm-hmm. There's still controversy on how to reverse low molecular weight heparin. And I think the other thing was a very, one of the wisest things I ever heard anybody say, besides anything you've said, obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously, obviously. Uh, is Ken Bauer one time at the American Society of Hematology meeting said, you know, reversal agents are reversal agents. They're not antidotes. And what he said is, if you have somebody OD on an opioid, you give them Narcan, they wake up, they start talking. Mm-hmm. If I have an intracranial hemorrhage, I get a reversal agent. You still have an intracranial hemorrhage. I still have an intracranial hemorrhage. And, you know, I think a lot of what we're seeing is the damage is done. So so I think it's, although it sounds great, oh, somebody's bleeding, we'll give them a reversal agent. It's really 
been a quagmire and it's very difficult. And especially, I think, with intracranial hemorrhages, it's better not to have one uh, using a DOAC than trying to figure out if you can reverse it or not. I see. So I see, I hear several themes. One, the entire idea that the, having a reversal agent makes a medicine somehow, we should be more comfortable with that yep. medicine. That may be a, a flawed idea because they're clearly medicines we've used for you know four thousand years, yes. like aspirin, for which we don't have a reverse right. agent. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one. Two, um, in in studies in the past in different classes of medication where we've attempted things that made logical reversal quote unquote sense, like administration of platelets for aspirin, we actually made things worse. Right. And three, um, and this is kind of the way I think about it, but tell me if I'm wrong, that when it comes to the direct thrombin inhibitors, at if you dosed it at the at a dose against Coumadin, where you achieve the same rate of thrombosis, you have less bleeding. Yes. And if you dose it at a dose where you achieve the same rate of bleeding, you have less thrombosis. Yes, yes, that would be it, that would be it. So I think the data with the higher doses of the new drugs do show less thrombosis but more bleeding, but you know, it's some of these drugs, and it's kind of a cliche, the sweet spot. It yes. seems like you have a bigger sweet spot with the DOAX yes. where, you have less bleeding less and less thrombosis, and less, thrombosis yeah. less intracranial hemorrhage. And I think that's been one of the reasons why uh, professional societies have moved uh, moved those up on recommendations to use first line or, or in, in eligible patients. I see. Um, so there's clearly the convenience issue. Yes. Um, there's the issue of uh, some of these trials, uh, particularly the original Dabigatran study showed fewer events in atrial fibrillation, did right. it not? Right, fewer thrombotic events. Mm -hmm. So there's the efficacy issue, mm -hmm. and there's the issue that the bleeding risk did not appear to be as bad as Coumadin. Right, right. And I think that's why. I think, you know, the convenience risk is, is pretty big. And I think the other thing, and to me, a group of patients I particularly aim for is patients with unstable INRs. You know, my, my, yeah. my, my rule of thumb is if the INR curve looks like a sine wave, uh, <laughs> right, right. you know, there's various rules about unstable INRs, but those people just are destined not to do well. They bleed, they clot, they particularly benefit from uh, being on a DOAC, but really probably anybody, no matter what their INR control is, you know, and I think the big issue is, is obviously the expense. Warfarin at some places is a $4 a month drug. If you can't afford that, you can go to Ace Hardware and get some Decon. Um, but, uh, you know, these drugs are 400 There's a lot of issues with reimbursement. And I think if these drugs were as cheap as Warfarin... Yeah, it'd be no-brainer. There'd be a no-brainer. And yeah. I, I think that's been the practical use. But I think to a lot of patients, they do offer advantages. Yeah. and, and Despite the irreversibility. The irrever yeah, the lack of reversal that's agent. Right. And... Um, one other thing to point out is that some of these drugs are BID dosing in contrast with Coumadin. Coumadin yes. has a very long half-life. My la I last I checked was like 18 hours or something yeah, 36 like 36 even. 36 even? Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong, okay. 36 hour half-life, that's yeah. uh, that's tremendous. Uh, Rivaroxaban half-life, seven to 13. Mm -hmm. Apixaban, around 12 hours. Yes. Um, so so one thing that's kind of built in the background of, the dis of this discussion is um, it's it's, not always intuitive to reverse something with a very short half-life because it's already reversing every minute it's in your body right. mm -hmm. very rapidly, right? That's that's fair to say. Uh, something with a very long half-life, right. that might be the kind of thing that you'd actually be able to get some bang for your buck with reversal. Correct, correct. Okay. So you've hit all the background. Okay, so let's talk mm -hmm. about this study. Yeah. Actually, the one thing I want to mention before this mm -hmm. study, when I look at the literature on the direct anti-thrombin inhibitors, mm -hmm. I believe that some of them actually have slightly better data than others. Is that fair to say? I think Rocket so. AF, yes. that broken catheter <laughs> that should have that was withdrawn by the FDA. Yes. 
Yeah, and I, I think so. So I think, uh, you know, all these have been undergone a lot of trials. I think some of them have been stronger. There's been issues about Rocket AF, uh, the River Rocks Van AFib trial, both with the statistics and then this mysterious INR business. Uh, you know, probably, you know, very few of these trials were actually reproduced, although I think we're getting more comfortable with, you know, good observational data that backs a lot of this up. But uh, but I think some of these were hindered by, you know, retrospective questions, you know, that Bigatran maybe levels would have helped uh, mm, right. rocket AF to INR issues. So I think there's been a little bit early days of a taint. I think as time has go on, and you know, probably my bias is I like these drugs. I have no influence, but I just like them. Nice. Um, is that I think the safety signals have borne out in in observational studies, in you know, reliable databases that that you know certainly when we have put more people on these drugs, we're seeing less intracranial hemorrhages overall. So, I, so I think that that has been the early concerns. Fortunately, I think has faded away for a lot of these drugs. Okay. Um, so let's talk about this. This is uh, this directly binds the direct oral anticoagulant yes. to this quote unquote dummy 10A. Yes. The drug itself is a dummy 10A. Uh. And, by, and by binding the dummy 10A, it liberates the real 10A, uh, which can continue to have active coagulation. So what it works is it actually increases the, the plasma 10A levels. That- Correct. It's, it's you know, I, I think as far as technique and coolness this you know the drug's actually pretty cool it's a uh, they took factor 10 they knocked out the active site so it doesn't activate coagulation but it still has very good avidity for uh you know for these the, drugs these drugs mm-hmm. and so you get them bound very tightly the other thing they knocked off is something called the GLA domain the GLA domain is what binds coagulation factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 the vitamin k ones to membranes. So the drug can actually float around and bind things. That's actually several fairly cool YouTubes about it. I see. Uh, So I think as far as technology, it's a very cool idea. But that I think has led to some of the issues with use is it's very reversible. And so, and the drug has a very short half-life. When you yeah, look, that's the key. The, yeah. the drug itself has a, what, a one-hour half-life. Yeah. And yeah. so when you look at the studies, it has to be given as a bolus to suck everything up, and then as a two-hour continuous infusion. And that's, that's, I think, where some of the issues arise. And that's why, you know, when I look at something like figure one, uh, where it shows the anti-factor 10A activity in nanograms per milliliter over time. It looks to me like the bolus actually does uh, sequester the drug yes. quite mm-hmm. well, but perhaps the infusion is, uh, is, is, is a bit... Uh, uh, a bit inadequate, or at the moment you turn off the infusion, it just comes right back to whatever the half-life is. It, it rebounds, and it's interesting. Um, th- this is an interesting way of presenting it. In the uh, in their preliminary report in New England Journal, they had actually published curves, and yeah. and what was nice is the curve went straight down, but you saw this rebound right after it uh, the infusion ended. Then it appears the drug decays like its half-life. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is if you look at the levels, so if you look at the four-hour levels of apixaban, 97 nanograms, that's actually right around the trough level of what you see people taking the drug. And in the river roxavan, that's kind of even in within trough to therapeutic. And so the the rebound's pretty pretty substantial. So 
And so I think that's interesting because one thing that gets lost is this trial did not look at pre-procedure and it's really recommended in the package insert not to do a pre-procedure. And now you can see why you're doing a AAA repair and four hours into the surgery, the patient's going to be anticoagulated again. So I think that's that's one thing that kind of gets glossed over a little bit. But yeah, It has the exclusion criteria of surgery planned within 12 hours yeah. or 24 hours or something. Right. And that was something actually the FDA worried about a lot in their briefing document is is the fast turnoff. And so I think the theoretical concept is, you know, you give the drug, you make a coagulation plug, then when you're back anticoagulated, maybe it's enough to, to uh, you know, keep things from bleeding. But, but I think that's, that's an interesting aspect. I think one other thing, and I'm going to back up a bit. Uh, there's another direct reversal agent out there. I dare you, Cizumab. I dare you, Cizumab. I just love that yeah. name. For di- I, I save you, Conazole, and I dare you, Cizumab. That's right. Yeah. Great drugs. And what's interesting about that drug is it's an antibody. So it it irreversibly, you know, it binds uh, dibigatran, and you get like zero levels for 24 hours. In that study, although it's kind of funny, uh, it's a varying endpoint. You know, in the original report, it took people still 11 hours to stop bleeding. Of course, what was interesting about that study is in the original prelim report, it was 11 hours. Then in an oral presentation, it was four hours. Then in the final thing, it was two hours. And they just, you know, kept selecting patients down and down who stopped bleeding. So, <laughs> so it's kind of changing the endpoint. And Ryan Radecki and I wrote a nice letter about that. But, uh, but I think, again, it brings up the point. When people bleed on anticoagulants, it's not only anticoagulation. You have a hole somewhere. You know, if you have a gastric ulcer, you're not going to stop bleeding until that ulcer is fixed. You know, if you break a blood vessel in your head, you, you know, that's that's still what's causing the bleeding and the issue. So again, I think reversibility is a lot more of a quagmire than just uh, than giving Narcan to somebody ODing on opioids. Right. Um, and also by having this inclusion criteria where patients who have a planned surgical procedure in 24 hours are excluded, one of the things that it also does is is the people with the worst intracranial hemorrhage, the worst bleeding, in whom the surgeon is actually planning on stop plugging the hole, those people are also excluded from this study, right? It's, right. It's the people in whom we yeah. we're just going to yeah. stop anticoagulation watch, yeah. right? And it's interesting. The very original protocol actually excluded people with intracranial hemorrhage over 30, centimeter, 30 millimeters in volume, which defines a very good risk group, but is very few people. I think they realized that was too extreme and it went up to 60, but you know, it's still picking people who are going to do okay. Uh, in fact, the average glucose coma scale, I believe, was 14, normal's 15. So um, just sort of like you on a bad morning. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you could argue, well, those are the people you want to say, but those also the people do well. And the overall mortality, I think, was about 10%. Yeah, of, and, of which the majority is thrombosis. Yeah. yeah. And if you look in other reversal studies, if you just look at... Uh, observational data of using, let's say, PCCs for reversal, yes. the fatality rate's 30 to 40%. So again, this is this is a group that's destined to do okay. And Yes, yeah. It's, I, it's not that yeah. I think that the drug is much better than PCC, but yeah. that they have been more selective in whom they've included. Right, right. right. And then the uh, fact that, you know, it's there, there is also reduction in expansion, which tends to actually be less frequent anyway with the direct oral anticoagulants. Uh, so. Right, versus the vitamin K antagonist. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the, I think what I... What it strikes me as is that, you know, it's a very costly drug, obviously. It's a a drug and it's new, so it's going to be costly. That's redundant, really, in this this day and age. Um, The doctors are going to be reaching for this, I think, not in these patients with bleed, but in the patients who are with the catastrophic bleeds, with the really severe bleeds. And those patients are not 
I don't think adequately represented in this trial. Would you say that's fair? I think that's fair. And we have there's a wonderful paper, Gene Connors from uh, think Harvard uh, wrote a very nice uh, early report on their use of a dexanate. And, you know, most of the patients they gave it to were actually, you know, would not been eligible for the protocol. They had like a 40% mortality. And I think that's going to be the challenge if you have this drug is, you know, Grandma Perkins falls off the roof, she's in a coma, she has a big intracranial hemorrhage, you know, you're going to reach for this drug and give it because, you know, you feel like you got to do something. Right. And I think that's a lot of worry of indication creep right. where these patients may not do as well as uh, the people in the clinical trials. Ryan Radecki has um, written a blog post about this. Uh, I see that uh, Rory Spiegel has written a blog yes. post about it, and uh, and Justin Morgenstern. Yes, uh, uh, they're all they're, they're all <laughs> really critical. Um, I think, um, and Ryan did a nice thing where he he I think excerpts from either the press release by mm -hmm. the company or the FDA, and it says, the most important limitation of this trial is that it did not include a randomized comparison with yes. the control group. At the time the study was initiated, it was determined that an RCT would have logistic and ethical challenges. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I find a little hard to believe, given the perceived risks of placebo assignment. Because the challenges, ironically, now are that we really don't know what would have happened to this group of people had you not given them a reversal agent at all. Right. Um, they might have done just as well. Right. Um, and and the the deaths that were seen in the trial, I think it was, I'm gonna pull it up, but for, I thought it was 14% death, but 10% from thrombosis. Right, the thrombosis signal has been there, and it's a very interesting and subtle uh, concern about the mechanism of action, because this drug not only binds direct on coagulants, but binds a coagulation protein called tissue factor pathway inhibitor. Mm. And that's a protein that normally binds factor 10, then it binds the tissue factor, factor 7A complex, and it shuts down coagulation. And what's interesting is tissue factor pathway inhibitor is actually a target of a new hemophilia drug. Because if you knock it out in early studies in patients who have hemophilia, you actually decrease their bleeding. You actually make them more prothrombotic. So the concern has always been I with adexanate, if you knock out tissue factor pathway inhibitor, will you make patients more prothrombotic? And apparently in normal volunteer studies, there was a signal of that. And that's been the concern because there's a very early rate of thrombosis. And if you look at the prothrombin complex concentrate trials for the direct oral anticoagulants, in a nice meta-analysis recently published in Blood Advances, the thrombosis rate was only 4%. In the original preliminary report, the thrombosis rate was 18. Now they're being more aggressive with anticoagulating patients, but that 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 still is a bit of a worrisome signal, and especially a lot of these were arterial thrombosis. Mm. You know, we think of like, you know, if I had intracranial hemorrhage in bed, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to get a DVT, mm -hmm. you know, but having people getting arterial thrombosis, stroke, that, that's, that's a worrisome thing. That's, that makes you think that the drug is doing it yeah. rather than uh, it's, a, it's some natural sequela of the illness. Right. right. Again, these are already high-risk patients get thrombosis. That's why they're on anticoagulants. Right. But, but I think that's a signal that's concerned a lot of patients. And I guess what it also does is... Um, a lot of that cool biology you were talking about is that this is something that's supposed to sop up the drug without right. making you prothrombotic because it doesn't have 10A activity. Right. But if it in fact does through this alternative mechanism, right. that loses some of the, the sexiness factor of the mechanism of action. Right, right. I think it's interesting that people who love tissue factor pathway inhibitor, but uh -huh. that's right. I think that's been kind of underlooked and it's sort of I guess the proof of principle, as we're seeing in hemophilia, that actually this drug, that pro, uh, this protein probably does play a role in uh, 
in uh, normal coagulation and suppressing abnormal coagulation. Now, I think the most damning thing I noted in the paper was figure three. Figure three is the receiver-operator characteristic curve for hemostatic efficiency. This is drawn at every cut point of, uh, of anti-10A activity and hemostatic efficiency. So let me try to translate what they're showing, showing here. They're basically saying, um, is there a relationship between the anti-factor 10A activity and whether or not your bleed is, control is excellent or good or lousy? And what they suggest in these two figures with an AUC of 0.53 or 0.64 is that it's a coin flip, that there is no relationship between the anti-10A activity and the, the, how bad the bleed is or whether the bleed gets worse or not. That uh, really undermines it as a surrogate for, for this phenomenon. And I guess the authors are, you know, to their credit, to their one credit, they admit that. What do you think? I think that's true. I, and again, I think it brings up that uh, it's messy to do these trials. There's a lot of factors in there. And obviously in a bleed, it's more than just the anticoagulant. It's the underlying shape of the patient, what caused the bleed, how much damage there was done with the bleed. And I think, again, as we saw in the Idarucizumab trial, you know, it's more than just reversing anticoagulation. There's a lot of other factors that roll in into how somebody will do with the bleed, what their outcome will be. But again, I think it also shows that you can even go back with INR reversal and, and PCC trials you know, you really need to have the bottom line. This is a sick group of patients who, by the fact they had intracranial hemorrhage, are probably destined not to do well. And can you really influence the natural history? Hmm. I think that, um, I think we've hit on, you know, all of the things that I saw. I mean, the, the challenges, I mean, you've done, a, a, I think, a nice job of talking about the biology. Um, I think the limitation is, you know, this is a half, the short half-life drug. Um, it may have these, this downside of making people actually slightly prothrombotic. There's no contemporary control group, and it wasn't a randomized trial, and that's really, I think, one of the key limitations. Um, I, I found figure two to be interesting, this hemostatic efficiency, um, because they draw this line at 50%, uh, at, but there's no, con you know, they make it look like it's a forest plot and it's supposed to be like favoring drug, but it really is just reporting descriptive data, and it's actually, you know, it's sort of a pointless way to show it. Um, I guess what I thought about as well is this is Portola Pharmaceuticals. Portola, that's two, two times they've gotten on my radar. The first time for Batrixaban, yes. which is a drug that was approved based on a non-significant p-value by their own protocol because they didn't know how to run a trial correctly. No, they ran the trial correctly, but they, they used hierarchical mm -hmm. Uh, statistical testing and they flunked and yet the FDA forgave them. Here they FDA forgives them for not having a control group. So that's twice the FDA has been quite forgiving to Portola Pharmaceuticals. Um, I don't know. What other thoughts do you have? So I had a couple other yeah. thoughts. One thing and this shows up at every trial of these reversal agents is 28% of patients enrolled in the study actually were, didn't have the drug in their system and we saw the same about 24, 25% uh, with uh, the idarucizumab trial for dibigatran. Uh, there's some interesting studies in trauma where people have said they're on asthma clopidogrel, about the same percent weren't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's a frustrating thing is you have to, you're going to give this drug to maybe up to one in four patients who actually- Who didn't take the DOAC. Who didn't take the DOAC, yeah. especially if it's prothrombotic, that's a concern. Right, uh, right. You know, should we have very rapid testing, then that, you know, escalates cost and time because yeah, you really and, would need a point of care test. You, know, right, you don't want to wait right. 
three days until the lab comes back from the University of Washington. Right, that loses the window of therapeutic benefit potentially. Right, right. right. And interestingly, one patient uh, said they're on a Pixaban. I think they actually had Rivaroxaban on board. And we're oh. starting to see a little mm-hmm. bit where patients like, I'm on a blood thinner. What blood thinner? I'm on a blood thinner. And you're, mm-hmm. what do you do? And I think the other... And and that matters because the dose was slightly different based on which drug you got and whether you got it within seven hours or after seven hours. The dosing of the bolus was different. Right, Right. because if you just took in Rivaroxavan, it has a higher plasma level, so you need more of the drug. Mm -hmm. And... yeah, and the other interesting thing was buried in the uh, supplements where there's always good nuggets of information. You know, the group, uh, if you looked at GI, intracranial hemorrhage, and other, the group that actually had the highest percentage of poor or no bleeding control, hemostatic effectiveness, was actually intracranial hemorrhage. It was 19.6%. Which is when you really want it to work. Yeah, again, the others were 15 and 14 and maybe not statistical, but mm-hmm. still, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's there. And I think you're you're right. I think... Maybe when the drug was developed, there was this concern like, oh, it's unethical. But I think as we get more experience, you know, more experience with basically not having a reversal agent or, you know, PCCs or standard of care that people seem to do okay, you know, the time appears to be ripe to consider a clinical trial. And and I think that, you know, we're going to be one of the centers, uh, hopefully with, uh, led by uh, another friend of the show, Dr. Marty Shriver. Mm, uh, trauma surgeon Marty Shriver that's was right. in a prior episode. Yeah, and so I think I think that will actually answer these questions. Now, uh, what's the control arm for the randomized So it's called, mm-hmm. it's going to be standard of care, mm-hmm. which I think realistically will probably PCC. end up being prothrombin complex mm-hmm. concentrate. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's going to be interesting. I think another important thing is that there's going to be off-label places that use it. Again, you know, it's not going to be pre-procedure. That's going to be asking for trouble. And I think that's going to be frustrating. I can see if you're in a hospital, it's like, oh, I want to do an appendectomy. or let, Let's do more realistic. I want to do a AAA repair on a guy who's taking a Pixaban. Yeah. You know, you can't give them this drug. You got Or you can give them this drug and run the drip in for eight hours until the hospital CEO comes down and strangles you. <laughs> or, you know, you PCC. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. I think that... I mean, that criteria that the exclusion is a planned surgery within a day, that's got to go if this is going to be useful data for most of us. Because those are the people in whom you're going to be thinking about giving this drug. The person who comes in with massive hemorrhage who, who's who got to get a surgery right now and you want to reverse them. Yeah. And I, to me, that was, again, the Idarisizumab trials were single arm and there's issues with those. But, you know, they had a pre-procedure arm and... You know, that is at least a planned procedure. There are criteria for bleeding, and it seemed like most people didn't bleed. Now, again, maybe they wouldn't have anyway, but you know, I think that was generalizable data and one that on the rare occasions we run into. And so I think that's going to be another issue is pre-procedure, you just probably will get PCCs and cross your fingers. Mm-hmm. So in development, there's a new drug, seroparangtag, which we think is the pronunciation. Uh, and this is a fascinating drug because it's sort of designed to reverse almost everything. It's like the imipenem of reversal agents. I it's see. broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. And again, it's very early development. Uh, but, you know, this may take care of the issues of what drug they're on. You know, maybe I'll have a longer half-life. I think this will be interesting as it comes along. So... I, I think one thing, and I, we talked about this briefly yesterday, I, I would have to give credit. You know, there was some flack for the New England Journal for publishing this study with all its weakness. But I think on the other hand, this was something people were very interested in. And instead of, and, you know, instead of having medicine by press release, we actually got to dig in the data, easily found 
criticisms and flaws. So I think it was a bit nice to have this bucket of data there to look through instead of just glowing press releases of an abstract presentation. So See, you're you're a I you're a fair man to say that. <laughs> you come on this stage and say that. That's right. When you know I hate that. No, no. Yeah, when I know that, I'll end up on the cutting, uh, uh, the uh, editing room floor. We so. will have this removed from the. No, but uh, but uh, I guess I would say that you know, you know, I can't argue with you by saying that this is better than medicine by press release. Yes, we live in a world where a lot of medicine is by press release. I'd rather read a paper and be able to rip it to shreds, mm. um, but. Um, you know, it just happened to come in that issue where every single article yes, in that yes. one issue was some lousy surrogate endpoint, lack of control arm. And, you know, it's I think that um, um, what's his name? Um, Rory Spiegel. Yes. The case of the scientific ruse. I mean, he took a bat to the whole issue. Yes. But 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 you're right. I mean, I'd much rather read a paper than than read those snippets. Well, Dr. Delory, this has been fascinating. I think um, you made so many wonderful points that um, I didn't fully appreciate. I think your point about reversal here mm-hmm. being different than um, than a, an opioid overdose, yes. that's a really astute mm-hmm. point, and I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And that, that makes the work of any reversal agent to show improvement in clinical outcomes mm-hmm. an uphill battle. Right. Also, um, your point about the fact that some people probably weren't on the drug right. we thought they were on. Mm-hmm. Again, that makes it an uphill mm-hmm. battle. There can only be the downside of an intervention and not the upside right. if you weren't on the drug for which you're being reversed. Um, the half-life of these medicines make it an uphill battle. Um, the fact that there's exclusions on in which populations we can give this to limit generalizability of this trial. And the real question is whether or not in a randomized fashion when we, when we get sure. this phase four tested against PCC, mm-hmm. um, Who's going to win? Who's going to have less major bleeding, less worsening of of severe bleeding, and who's going to have potentially thrombosis that offsets any right. benefit? But I'm glad that Dr. Schreiber is on the case, yeah. and he's going to solve this for he's us. He's going to solve this. And I think one other key yeah. point, which really didn't come out except when we uh, dug into this paper, is the drug has a conditional approval by the FDA. Mm-hmm. They have to do this trial, and maybe mm-hmm. like bevacizumab for breast cancer, will it be pulled if it's negative? So I think that's a underappreciated fact that this isn't, yeah, we'll think about it. It's they got a hard deadline. They it's five a, years. They got a deadline. That's true. But uh, in recent years, the FDA has mm-hmm. not been w- yes. cracking that whip. I'm still wondering about Gee, atezo and bladder cancer. Yes, a plug. Uh, uh, <laughs> Kim and I, Chul Kim and I, in 2015 in Jam and Turtle Medicine. All right. Well, Dr. Delory, thank you so much <laughs> for coming you. on the podcast. It's an honor always. The resident blood man. Da, da, da. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. John McConnell. I think you're all gonna be in for a real treat today because John McConnell is one of the the leaders here on campus in health services research and health economics. And I wanna tell you a little bit about him and introduce him. Uh, So Dr. McConnell is originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, a town that is near and dear to my heart because I had a couple parking tickets from that town once upon a time. They were pretty ruthless about parking tickets. He did his undergraduate at Stanford University. Then he went on to do a master's in economics at the University of Washington. He worked a little bit here in Portland prior to doing a PhD in management science and engineering at Stanford University. So you've spent a great deal of time in Stanford, Dr. McConnell. Uh, I have, yeah. Um, Once I tasted the fruits of the West Coast, it was hard to to go back. West Coast, best coast. Once you get it, you can't leave it. Then you spent some time at the University of California, San Francisco, prior to coming here to OHSU in 2002, where you were originally in the Department of Emergency Medicine 
and and you still keep a foot in that department. Yeah, I'm still part of the faculty there. Yep. Um, but over time, you have uh, really branched out and set up your own shop on the waterfront, um, doing really high-quality health services and health economics research. And so I want to thank you for joining us here on Plenary Session. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, I think listeners should know that one of your interests and fo- focuses of your research is on Medicaid and Medicaid policy. Um, you also have kept a, a close eye on the accountable care organizations and, and the Oregon CCOs, which is sort of a, a subgroup of that. And we're going to talk about some of those topics. But I guess my first question to you is, um, why the West Coast? Uh, what do you like about it, Dr. McConnell? Well, uh, I guess I grew up in Michigan and uh, fantasized about what it would be like to go to California. And, um, and then I and got... And more fantasies in the winter. <laughs> more fantasies in the winter. Uh-huh. Uh, Got there, like that, okay. Uh, liked it quite a bit. And then uh, had a couple of uh, friends who gravitated to the Northwest. And so I, um, right around uh, my senior year of college, I came up and, and saw Seattle and Portland. And um, and it was just one of those things where you uh, see a space and the environment and the people, and it just felt like this is where I wanted to be. And so I was sort of working hard to 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 find a reason to stay or to get back, um, and you know whether that was school or, or work or something like that. But that was that was a, just sort of was drawn to the to the region. And I know you like some of the activities that we're known for here. I, I see you riding your bike yeah. here and there. I do a little bike riding, uh-huh. um, some skiing, uh-huh. uh, like the outdoors. Um, so, um, and we have slightly bigger mountains than in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big understatement. Yes, yeah, that is right. I also did my college in Michigan. I did my college in Michigan, and I remember once my friends wanted to go skiing, and uh-huh. so we spent like you know eight to ten hours driving to Canada. Yeah, and then by the time we get there, it's like hardly a hill at all. Yeah, yeah, I used to. Go go to a place called Mount Brighton that was made out of garbage. And yeah. That, that was, that I was, was about where to I learned. Mount Brighton. Yeah. So yeah. Mount Brighton was a, it was a, it was a landfill that they piled up and then it's, it's both golf course and ski resort. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, that's where I, that's where I learned. That's where I did all my skiing for a while. And what is it? Like 700 feet high? Uh, it's, I don't, it's, I don't it's even trivial. think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's gotta be even smaller than that. I mean, it <laughs> felt huge at the time. Right. And then the first time I came out West, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I can still remember the first time I went up in a chairlift that when I was out West, I just could not believe it. So, yeah. Yeah. You go to some of these places in Colorado and you can, you know, conse- a, a single run can be like 30 minutes yeah, long. Right, and Mountain yeah. Brighton, it's like, it's you know, like 30 three seconds. Turns. Yeah, three yeah. turns. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your work. So I guess um, I've been keeping a track. Of, I've been keeping an eye on you, Dr. McConnell. Up here on top of the hill, I, I look down upon the city and I see your, your office building down there. And I know you're, you're up to something. I don't know exactly what. But one of the things that, that you're very interested in is Medicaid. Uh, and our listeners are, I think, they're going to be pretty familiar with Medicaid. But, of course, Medicaid is a safety net coverage system. Um, it has different sort of implementation at a state level. Um, and there have been a number of challenges and reforms that have been going on lately. And I'm wondering, maybe we should just jump in there. 
Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, my, the, I'll, I'll say a couple words uh, around Medicaid just to, to refamiliarize people with it and maybe describe some things that they're not quite aware of. But it's uh, now with the, um, the expansion that happened as part of the Affordable Care Act in 2014, it's actually now the largest insurer out there, so it covers more people than, than Medicare. Oh, has that tr- oh really? Yeah. It's surpassed yeah. Medicare? I yeah, didn't know so that. it's okay. about 76 million uh, plus minus. Mm. Um, the population is sort of interesting uh, and different, and it makes it, I think, hard to study to a certain extent. And so I... Uh, um, you could kind of think of four groups of uh, that it's covering. So it's covering uh, pregnant women. Mm-hmm. It's covering uh, disabled individuals, mm-hmm. uh, low-income elderly. Mm-hmm. I guess that's three. Uh, it covers uh, kids. It covers a, 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 a huge uh, number of kids, and so it's a, a responsible for about 40% of coverage of kids across the country and slightly higher in Oregon. Wow. Um, and then it covers, uh, especially with the expansion of the ACA, it covers uh, non, what we call non-disabled adults, which are low-income adults. And all of this applies to low-income individuals, so, so eligibility is uh, conditional on having incomes b- below a certain level. But those are pretty heterogeneous groups. Um, the uh, it's gone. It's sort of undergone a lot of changes since the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, expansion in 2014, and so you can. And, and I guess I think of of uh, states falling into maybe uh, three categories. So so with 2014, there was a, the the option for states to expand Medicaid, and mm-hmm. and before that, the uh, the kind of the easiest way you could think about it is that it it really covered these um, people that we thought of as uh, categorically eligible. So were you low income and pregnant? Were you low-income and disabled? Were you low-income and a child? But if you're just low-income, single adult, there weren't many options. And some states offered coverage, but others didn't. But the ACA basically got rid of that categorical eligibility and said, we're going to cover people with uh, with incomes below, I think it was 171% of the federal poverty line. Mm-hmm. And originally, uh, um, I don't go too back too far back in history, but the the way the ACA was originally designed was that was going to be mandatory for all states. Mm-hmm. There was the uh, the um, the court case that went in front of the Supreme Court, uh, and they that they made that optional, and so states opted in. I think it's about this is not going to be quite right because it changes so much, but it's about. 32 states that have opted to expand Medicaid and 18 that haven't, mostly along political lines there. Yeah, and, 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 and you say along political lines, but uh, what, what, and, and you're right, because in the sense that um, it is a very illogical decision not to expand. The government is basically saying, here's all this free money, and it will benefit your people. And the only reason you wouldn't expand is if you held on to some principle that is some belief stronger than the belief of actually doing good for the people who live in that state. Essentially, yeah, I don't have much to add there. So, and there have been studies that look at this, and so the, the, the federal government subsidized this really heavily, and when you sort of factor in that massive subsidy plus all of the spillover money that comes in to, yeah. to pay for other services, it's, um, it's financially beneficial for states to do this. And so, um, so not, so, you know, you often hear states sort of make some case about, well, you know, we don't know how we're going to pay for this. Well, at least in the f- first five years, it's, it's hard not to justify it financially. Right. Um, so, but that's kind of one big uh, dividing point. And then among states that have expanded, another dividing point, um, I think you can sort of roughly separate it out into states that have um, really tried to change the way that Medicaid is formulated and thought of in terms of um, uh, putting a lot of accountability on the, the patient um, or the individual or the enrollee, and these come in the forms of uh, things that are new, generally new to Medicaid, um, uh, premiums, uh, um, having to fill out uh, um, uh, health surveys showing that they're responsible for their own health, 
Um, some of the more the the ones that are kind of uh, uh, in the media now more are, are work requirements. So having to show that you're working 20 hours a week or volunteering 20 hours a week or something like that. Um, and again, you know, those uh, co uh, uh, cost sharing for low income individuals. And again, the the um, you're sort of an evidence guy really, really, really hard to find uh, evidence to support these things. And so, you know, the work requirements thing sort of comes from um, probably some uh, uh, reasonable philosophical question. Well, you know, if we're just sort of giving people free care, maybe they're taking advantage of it and maybe they need to be contributing to society. And so we'll, we'll, we'll ask that they uh, uh, they show that they're at least trying to make a good faith effort to go out and work. And so we could all sort of start, maybe that's a reasonable premise. Well, if you actually took the Medicaid population, like I just mm -hmm. uh, described it, and say, okay, well, um, pregnant women, right. Uh, children, right. disabled adults, right. we're already taking out a book chunk. <laughs> right, right. Uh, then we're sort of getting to the, the non-disabled adults. adults. Low, yeah. Lots of them are already employed. And yeah. so you sort of, you're kind of like spending a lot of effort getting really, really narrow. And it turns out that, that when you put these things out, at least sort of the early state evidence is, um, you know, people get kicked off of Medicaid for reasons like they didn't, they didn't fill out their form. And, and, it, and it sort of puts this extra burden on it. And I think, you know, um, being poor can be really expensive, and you're adding on more costs and more filing requirements for poor people in order to have coverage that, for people like you and me, just shows up as part of our paycheck. Right. And so, um, so, uh, so that, I think that's sort of one area that you're seeing, and there's still a lot of churn there around. You know, what what sort of personal personal accountability can be there? I think what you'll see is um, that. The evidence is not going to support that. Whether or not they're sort of adhere to those because of dogma is a um, you know the time, time only time will tell there. But I can give you another example of one that that didn't play out well that has that that, that sort of sticks in my mind but hasn't been. Um, well, let's sort, let, yeah. But I want yeah, I want to sorry, give you an example. Sorry. No, I just wanted to say that um, I guess it sounds like to me what you're saying is. Um, you could understand why someone might say, like, look, we, we want to encourage people to work. So we, we sympathize with that. But what gives you uh, the problem, what makes you wonder, is when the bureaucratic cost of administering that rule is more than any potential gain from the rule, one. And two, if it becomes an arbitrary and capricious way to kick people off insurance in a way that's ultimately self-defeating, defeating at the level of the goals of public policy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you could sort of start with sort of a very broad assessment of, you know, I think kind of all economics essentially says, you know, if we do this, is it going to improve social welfare? And so, you know, social welfare is, can be pretty uh, broad there. And so, you know, if the, you could imagine some world where work requirements go in place and people get benefit from work and it makes them feel better right. and our, and our health care right. costs go down. Eh, there's some there's some path where that's available. But, right. if but it's not, it's not. Then it's just <laughs> then, foolish. Then it's sort of foolish. It's yeah. foolish. Yeah. But yet, and this is what I like to call a self-inflicted policy wound. Yeah, there's a lot of those. And there's a lot of those. Yeah. And I'm like, look, I'm willing to, I understand that there is a, a diversity of political opinions. And I can understand a little bit, although I struggle at times, to understand why people may have other political opinions. But what I do not understand is why anyone with any ounce of education would be willing to engage in a policy that either wastes money or doesn't accomplish its stated goals. That is irrational. Yeah. And that should be halted. Th yeah, yeah. So this, so the, so, so, so I don't want to get too okay. ahead of, but th this, this, there's another one. Yeah, where, no, let me talk about the other one. Yeah. So, so this one was what. The, the, so this is what, this maybe gives you some benchmark of how strong it has to be to sort of reverse your, mm -hmm. your, uh, your philosophical beliefs. So, um, so we know something about. Uh, 
cost sharing or co-payments when we require people with commercial insurance to pay $5 for their office visits mm-hmm. or $15. And, and, you know, the evidence on that is pretty good. So people, um, you, you raise co-payments and, um, or cost sharing and people stop going to the doctor quite as much and they don't really know how to, to differentiate between whether it's a useful visit or an unuseful visit. And so it sort of pulls back on all of them. Mm. Um, but saves money. Uh, on, the, on the low income population, it's not so clear. And so there haven't been as robust studies, but sometimes it looks, you know, uh, the, like um, maybe they pull back, but then when they visit, they're sicker. And so the, the, there's no cost savings. And, you know, generally these are, and, uh, you know, it's not clear if you have adverse outcomes for, for people who are both poor and sick. And so it's a little bit more uh, questionable. So one state said, well, you know, anyway, we think that, that, that skin in the game is important. So we're going to create um, uh, health savings accounts, which are even more different, more more of an administrative hassle yeah, for yeah. for low-income people. And we're going to sort of put a little bit of money in there, and then we're going to expect these people to, to manage that and manage their, their health care uh, costs. So this was Arkansas. So they, they did that. When you look at sort of the total amount of um, – of what people were actually paying out of their 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 health savings accounts mm-hmm. for services, it was like four hundred fifty thousand dollars. The cost of administering that, so you're setting up these accounts, mm-hmm. you're putting in, now, you, you know, five dollars. Yeah, yeah. So the administrative cost of of, of administering that was nine million dollars. <laughs> so you spent nine million dollars to to have people spend four hundred fifty thousand dollars on things that probably made their care worse. That actually, they put the brakes on that. Um, but you know, uh, that was a, a uh, you know a twenty to one uh, yeah. negative return on investment yeah. or something like that. So uh, so there's still, uh, I think we have a, still a long ways to go to sort of uh, get people comfortable with. Um, uh, maybe we can have something like Medicaid without putting on um, the sort of traditional cost sharing and other types of things. But, you know, again, I guess I'm saying I, I'm open to uh, being convinced the other way if it, if it works. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like no matter what your political persuasion, it, no one can justify that ratio of administrative cost to, you know, the actual amount of money that's being paid out of pocket. Uh, it's illogical. Yeah. But yet I think we see this over and over again. Um Okay, so this is the state of Medicaid. So, well, so I, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, so, yeah, so yeah. this, so, so there's one, there's one group of states that didn't expand Medicaid. There's others that expanded, uh-huh. it, and then they've really the sort of focus you could sort of grossly simplify it as being the f- on on personal accountability or something. You could put other words to it, but something around patient, the patient is the focus is on the patient. And then there's other groups of states that have expanded Medicaid, and their focus has really been on changing the way that we pay for care and changing the delivery system. And so for patients, it essentially looks the same, and really the onus is on providers and other types of groups to uh, to try to change care, and they are the ones that are accountable, and they're the ones that are facing incentives. And so that's what Oregon is doing. That's what uh, Washington is doing. That's what other states are doing. And so that 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 seems to me to be a more promising avenue. Uh, you know, I think the evidence around the patient accountability for these low-income people is going to look really. Uh, it, it's you know we can wait, but I, but my guess is it's not going to pan out. But I think there are some there's some real lessons to be gained from states that are uh, trying to figure out how do we pay for care better in a way that is beneficial to the taxpayer and the, the patient. Mm. And uh, and let's talk about that a second. But I guess the, I just want to bash that um, the accountability of low-income people idea some more. Uh, it, is, it is just such a bizarre thing that, um, that I guess I would say that so much policy is devoted to this idea that people who are poor and vulnerable and seeking medical care should have put more of their back into it, more of their time, their effort, their administrative costs, their personal payments, um, more work into it to earn it. Um, and and I guess I would say that 
even at the outset, the plausibility that any of these interventions actually improve societal welfare uh, for a reasonable price, I think is low, uh, based on sort of everything we know about psychology and we know about the human condition. But yet, it is a persistent idea that this won't die. Yeah, I, 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 that's, uh, I don't know if I can expand on that, but I think that's generally right. I mean, I think, you know, I, we can remain open to being uh, proven wrong, but the, but the evidence generally tilts in the other way, and it feels like it's primarily a philosophical bent that's driving this. Yeah. Now let's talk about what promising things are being done by by admirable states, um, such as Oregon. Now in Oregon, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding has been that it is a core principle of Medicaid in this state. You know, you talked about that these are, this is a program administered to people who typically don't have a lot of money, but it varies state to state exactly where they draw the line. And my understanding is that Oregon has always been able to draw the line a little bit higher, i.e. include more people um, who are not rich, but not as poor as some other states where they draw a very strict line. And one of the ways Oregon balances that is they are more conscious conscious about what are the services they cover. They would rather cover high yield services for more people than every service for very, very few people. Is that fair to say? So you're yeah, so yeah. this is uh, kind of the brainchild of, of uh, former Governor John Kitzhaber. This was introduced in the 1990s um, and then uh, 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 kind of um, implemented in the late the late 90s and so uh, going back if you look at this sort of the um, the the policy discourse on this I think you'd be nostalgic and and shocked just to sort of see where people landed on this because mm. it, I mean I think sort of stepping back I think if you're if you're um, familiar with the policy landscape and and sort of have observed a few things you, you know I think uh, you you can be maybe you and I are, are relatively comfortable with the notion of um, maybe we don't give um, every single person, every single treatment that's available. Maybe there's some uh, quote-unquote rationing that happens there, but um, but we do that in a smart way. We can save money, and maybe patients are better off mm-hmm. also. So mm-hmm. Oregon, what, what they basically said was, you know, let's look at the – this is what, what Governor Kitzhaber did. He said the, the Medicaid program right now uh, covers certain populations of patients. Once you're covered, it, it provides everything. Mm-hmm. We're going to draw lines. We're going to sort of say, here's all the different treatment uh, diagnosis pairs that we have, and we're going to say we're going to cover up to a certain point the ones that are most valuable mm-hmm. and not cover below that, but we're going to expand coverage to um, to, to cover people. everybody. And mm-hmm. so at that time, I think it was 100% of the federal poverty line for anybody, even if you didn't fall into one of these traditional categories. Wow. And people went nuts. Mm-hmm. And so they said, Oregon's rationing care. We can't do this. So Al Gore was really a huge critic of this thing. Really? And so, so there was sort of a lot from the left of like, what does this mean to be rationing care? But to be fair, other states were rationing, but they were just rationing based on how much money you made. And if you made more than a certain amount of money, which is not a lot of money, you're still pretty poor. You're, you're saying you get nothing. If you were, it wasn't. It wasn't even that. If you were a, if you were an adult, say, let's take somebody who was at ninety percent of the federal poverty line, which is very uh, low. Very uh, low. Um, yeah. Uh, if you were a an adult without children, you got nothing. If you were an adult with children, you got coverage. So yeah, I rationing see, was right. happening for illogical reasons. Illogical reasons, yeah, right? But yeah. now we were rationing based on the value of the service. Yes, okay. right. Yeah. So so that was so Oregon was kind of an initial, an early tinkerer there, and mm-hmm. I think that there were a lot of. Um, uh, 
lessons there in terms of how do you do this? So the first time they came out with something, they had done it in a sort of a algorithmic way, and it was all sorts of uh, there was crazy stuff. And so they they you know put together work groups across the state, and this was uh, some people call this the Oregon way. You know how do we do this and make sure it's transparent, make sure people are comfortable. Mm-hmm. They came up with something that uh, everybody in Oregon knows about. It's called the prioritized list, but it's essentially this big list of things, and they sort of draw the line where Medicaid is going to pay for things and where it's not. So that formula sort of set the stage mm-hmm. for what happened in 2012. So 2012 was sort of the next big change in the Oregon program. And so um, uh, what Oregon did here was it, it uh, moved its Medicaid program that was um, already tinkering around the edges, uh, largely managed care, um, into uh, uh, having everybody co- being covered by uh, CCOs, which are coordinated care organizations. And CCOs, um, uh, you can think of as a little bit of a hybrid of an accountable care organization, which show up in Medicare to a certain extent in the commercial uh, population, and managed care organizations. And so these are um, uh, risk-bearing entities. There's an administrative layer, which makes them a little bit different than a traditional Medi- Medicare ACO. Um, but they've got some accountability to the community and the patients, and they've got some quality metrics. Um, and so that happened in 2012. And one of the big things that they did there was uh, they got a, a large uh, infusion of money from the federal government to carry out this experiment. And in response, they said, we're going to hold the trend uh, of medical spending at 3.4%. Mm-hmm. And historically, it had been at 5.4%. So they were going to cut it down by 2%. Bend it a little. Bend it. They got the CCOs uh, sort of had, uh, and, and what the CCOs had is they had a global budget. They had all the money, uh, and they could sort of do what they wanted to with it. They were different than some of the traditional managed care organizations uh, in that they had to include mental health and substance use. And, and dental. And dental. Eventually, that took a couple years. But um, but before those things had been carved out, meaning that there would be one group that would pay for mental health care and one group that would pay for physical health care. They put them all together. And then they had uh, flexibility to spend off of, uh, of uh, medical care. And so the, the story then and uh, I feel like I've told this story too many times because it started out as an, as an example and then began to be sort of reported as this, you know, apocryphal thing that actually happened. But the, the example was so clear that it made sense to people. So you could imagine um, a, uh, a woman on Medicaid uh, with chronic diseases that would be exacerbated by heat. And during a heat wave uh, that, that the old Medicaid system would pay for a number of uh, ambulance transports to the emergency department, maybe mm-hmm. hospital admission. Um, and the new Medicaid, the CCOs, could could pay for an air conditioner that's not a medical claim, it's not medically necessary, but they could pay for something that was off medical, off the medical care system. They had flexibility to do that. That would be a lower cost way of improving outcomes for, for this person. And so, so let me ask this. Yeah, just yeah. To, so the CCO, basically, what the CCO does is they say, we will ensure, we will take care of these thousand people. Yep. You will give me a certain amount of money per person I take care of, and I'm on the hook for anything they need. I'm on the hook for whatever hospitalizations they need, whatever services they need, but you give me freedom to use whatever I want to make their lives better. And as you use in this nice example, if an air conditioner could be, you know, $3,000 to put, I don't know, whole house AC or a couple hundred bucks to get it in, you know, I don't know, in the window AC. Uh, so they're saying that that might be a better use of money for somebody who deals with just chronically heat exacerbated, you know, conditions than it is to just keep shipping them back and forth to the hospital. Fair to say. Yeah, that's sort of the the perfect theoretical model of this, mm-hmm. and with the the additional constraint of being uh, having a budget cap going forward. And so, traditionally, Medicaid MCOs would sort of get paid more according to medical utilization. And so, if if uh, if utilization went up or the, uh, things like that, they'd get more. And this just says 
you get 3.4% going forward and you got to figure out how to manage that. I see. And what about like, can the CCO say, um, you know, we're going to pay for these certain drugs that are high value drugs, but there's some of these drugs that, you know, we're just not going to pay for. Are they allowed to kind of... There's not as much flexibility in the drugs part. Um, and so there, I think some of the drugs are required. Uh, uh, I think that, I think the drug policy is largely set at the state level, what would be covered. I see. That's and because then, they have better lobbyists. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, but what about, but, but um, hospital costs and surgery, those, the CCO can, pl- can push back there. They can push back there. I think they're more, they're more, uh, uh uh, trying to uh, a lot of what they're trying to do is sort of um, intervene and avoid high cost uh, uh, services uh, hospitalizations. They there were some CCOs that had uh, uh, kind of played with the way that that emergency transport uh, occurs, and so the old system, um, uh, an ambulance in order to get paid would sort of pick you up and have to take you to the hospital. If they just came to your apartment and looked at you, they wouldn't get paid. I see. The new CCOs, you could sort of ha- send them out. They could do a mild, you know, uh, fix your sprained ankle or whatever, and, and then not actually take you to the emergency department. So which could be cost saving, right? Which way. would be so. There's a lot of that sort of more more around. I'd say the um, the interventions than kind of uh, we're going to cover this versus not cover gotcha. that. Gotcha. And then the the other thing that you, you mentioned that I want to stress is that so like the government basically loaned Oregon it was an investment from the federal point of view three billion or something like that one point nine billion one point yep. nine billion yep. in order to do this but any savings would be given back to the government so they potentially could make a lot of money yeah so they so the sort of and the math is a little bit fuzzy here because uh, you know the way that these things happen are through government budgets and it's not uh, as if anybody was at risk but but essentially if you kind of looked out and said. Uh, you know, traditional. If you if you follow the traditional uh, spending trend, um, then uh, it would cost the federal because Medicaid is a is a state federal partnership, and the federal government pays part big part of it. Mm. So so the federal government would have been paying X million dollar or X billion dollars um, if they make this investment up front, and the trend comes down at two percent mm-hmm. lower, mm-hmm. then they'll get some ROI. And so that mm-hmm. was sort of the the math of it. I see. Okay, go on. So then they tried th- this started in 2012. Started in 2012 uh, and uh, there were 16 CCOs that formed and they're they're uh, uh, kind of regional. There was a little bit of overlap, so there were two in uh, in the Portland area. There were a couple others down south that overlapped, but but a lot of them kind of uh, took their own space. A lot of heterogeneity, so um, so there the largest one was a tri-county CCO here in uh, in Oregon. Uh, uh, or sorry, in Portland, there's another one that covered this giant rural area out in eastern Oregon, and it's you know it's the, it's bigger than some states, but it only covered like 15,000 people because mm, yeah. uh, uh, the the rural nature of that. So uh, so they they formed, they did a lot of experimentation, uh, went forward. Uh, we did a study of of it, of the uh, the cost savings and, and quality and access on this, and we we actually did sort of two similar studies. We did what so anytime a state does a big experiment like this. Um, it usually is under uh, what's known as an 1115 uh, Medicaid waiver, and there's a requirement for a third-party evaluator to I see. assess it. Oh, I didn't know that. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So okay. We, we did that for Oregon. Then, and we also had some NIH and uh, philanthropic funding to assess the impact of that. And so we had um, uh, a, a pretty good study designed for for the health services people, maybe not for the randomized uh, <laughs> uh, uh, trial uh, proponents, but so we had uh, we we had claims data from the state of Washington, and uh-huh. Washington looks pretty similar to Oregon in terms of the managed care profile, the demographic profile, 
and in the study period that we looked at, um, they weren't doing anything major around policy. They're they're now pretty active with a variety of things. But but I see. The so you have a, c a contemporary control group. We had a we had a good comparison group. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to differentiate between control and comparison, but a good comparison. Uh, right, 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 fair enough. <laughs> no, you're right, right. Comparison. Yeah. You had a good. You had a, a comparable comparison group. Right. Yeah. Uh, comparable comparison group across the river. Right. Similar trends up until the 2012. And you did difference in difference. We did a difference in difference. I yes, knew it. Yeah. Okay. I knew it. We're going to talk about that yeah, later. The, okay. Uh, so you. Did so we did that, and so we saw um, that the trends were pretty similar uh, uh, leading up to the CCO intervention, and then after that, that spending was lower in Oregon. So, mm. so, uh, mm. so it looks mm -hmm. like uh, the CCOs did something to reduce. And spending. how much lower? It's about seven percent lower over two years, which is pretty good That's for pretty good. for payment uh, delivery system. Reform. So then, the government must have saved like eight billion dollars or something. Yeah, well, I think uh, somebody did the math on that. Yeah. We just sort of tried to to to, to point it out point as it sort out, of a, a uh, you know per member per month type of. of Savings. So but they probably recoup their 1.9 billion. Uh, I probably did. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So spend. So and that that part's a little bit tricky because really uh, this was a funny period where Medicaid uh, actually all spending across all payers was sort of slowing down in, in the 20. 11, 2013 time period. Yeah, I noticed and that. So, I wonder why. Um, that yeah, it's not. It's uh, a couple of people have done studies on that. It's not entirely clear. So, so, so maybe doctors were prescribed. Pr were practicing better medicine. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Less unproven devices and drugs. Yes, right. Somehow I don't know if that's the know. reason. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So you found that it was associated with. Um, a bending of the growth of Medicaid. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so I would say spending uh, was spending uh, uh, slowed down more in Oregon than it did in, in Washington. In Washington, yeah. Yeah, so it still grew because that's the nature of healthcare spending. I think, well, it's it's it's. I think it actually came down. Oh, it actually shrunk. Yeah, it actually shrunk in that period, but it was coming down for both states, or maybe uh, slightly uh, uh, um, uh, level across both states. So so that was sort of unconventional because almost all of these cost studies, you have costs going up, and it's yeah. sort of like do you do you slow it down a little bit? This time it was coming down, and it came down more in Oregon. That's good. Yeah. So that does suggest that um, uh, that at least in terms of a, a financial endpoint, um, that things like the CCO can change the narrative. Yeah, I think it's a you know it's it's just one study, one comparison state. I think there's a lot more to, to pull out of there. Um, we. Um, uh, we compared. We also compared it to Colorado. Colorado was a state that was actually doing some reforms there, and we didn't see any cost savings uh, associated with Colorado. But we saw sa uh, spending coming down both in both states. Mm. Um, my my gut is that that Colorado wasn't a great comparison because it was doing its own set of reforms, and so they had some some cost savings also. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's sort of uh, suggestive, and, and we also some saw some some uh, some improvements in quality, some reductions in avoidable ED visits. Um, in the measure of access, we didn't. We actually saw Oregon coming down a little bit, but that's because it had a pretty high rate of access relative to other states to begin with, and so um, it came down a little bit, but was still higher than both states. So I think a pretty, you know, ambitious attempt to change things. Um, I think that there was a lot that didn't work as well as um, as uh, the the stated hope, but sort of a you know a promising kind of early uh, set of measures. Um, we had another study that looked at some uh, changes in uh, in disparities across uh, um, differences between white enrollees and black enrollees, and that seemed to shrink a little bit. Whites versus American Indians, that those those seemed to shrink a little bit. Wow, so I think disparities got a little bit better. Disparities got a little bit. So I think you know, sort of, uh, the, you know, I, I don't want to say the jury is in on this, but the but the evidence is sort of promising that this may be, a, you know, uh, there may be some good things about the CCOs. And since the 2012, and since you know, you guys studied it in what 2016, I think. Yeah. Um, 
CCOs have grown in Oregon, have they not? They haven't. They haven't grown there. So there was one that that one of the Portland area CCOs uh, left, and um, uh, that was a contentious uh, departure. But they um, they were struggling financially, and uh, you know I think. Um, they would say they weren't getting the right break from the state. And I think others would say they were they were maybe spending, uh, paying their their providers too much or not spending their money in the right way. Anyway, they've exited. Um, we're now at a pretty interesting period. So the so the f- the first five years you can think of these waivers come in five year increments. Mm-hmm. And so 2012 through 2017 was one chunk. One of the CCOs has left. Um, the state took a pause to think about what do we, what are the priorities over the next year, and those fell into sort of four areas. So one was to continue this uh, cost growth, uh, 3.4% target. Another was to increase the use of value-based payments, and so this means trying to get away from fee-for-service. That was part of the original CCO model, but it didn't move as fast as people wanted to, and so now there's more language and rules around what that's going to look like. Um, a third was to improve the integration of mental health and physical health. And so mm-hmm. this is an area where there's a lot of really good evidence that suggests that if you can have, uh, say, a psychologist in the primary care office um, and have the patient receive treatment for, for multiple conditions there, that outcomes are better and spending is probably lower. Um, but that was part of CCO 1.0, but it didn't really move as fast as they wanted to. And so I mm-hmm. think they've identified some barriers to move that forward. And the fourth area is sort of the big hot area in Medicaid right now, which I, I think they, they, they maybe sometimes to use two labels. One is it's, it's kind of combined uh, addressing health equity, but really addressing social determinants of health. And so this means, uh, for, for your listeners who are new to this, all of the things that are outside the medical system, housing, uh, food, nutrition, um, uh, maltreatment within the household, uh, can you do things like that w- that will make health better and reduce uh, health care spending? So those are the four areas, the CCO um, contracting process is taking place, and so we expect that people will have kind of finalized contracts by July and that the next round of CCOs will be kicking off in uh, calendar year 2020, I believe. So we have another waiver from Medicaid. We do, yeah. And that's and that's sort of funny because it, it kicked off, I think that waiver kicked off in 2017, but really the changes are just happening now. I see. Yeah. And that's and that's fascinating because somebody was telling me very recently that providing stable housing in terms of like dollar per quality actually is like a very high value intervention. Yeah, it looks pretty good. And I think I think there's there's the devils in the details here. And I think sort of what what it means, you know, the difference between providing housing or providing sort of supportive housing or rental assistance, all of those things really matter. I think the, the populations matter, whether you're focusing on a you know, a group that's already homeless with severe mental illness versus just sort of expanding it beyond that is tricky. But that's that's one of the priorities of the state is to really um, try to, uh, to, to, to sort of bring in housing as part of the um, the CCO model. Now, whether that means, you know, are you providing housing, you're providing housing assistance, are you screening for it to do something about that, That's some of that has to be worked out. I see. You know, I've been it kind of makes me think about this um, because I've been reading the newspaper and I see that um, the presidential cycle is getting quite heated. And um, they had a nice little article saying that, you know, let's let's clarify some terms. Uh, one was universal care. What do we mean by universal care? That everyone in America would be covered through some way. Um, then there's also the proposal of Medicare for all, which is just expanding the eligibility of Medicare. Uh, which does a pretty good job and has a very low administrative cost um, to many, many people, o- or the idea of some single payer, uh, such as the federal government being some sort of baseline payer, um, or the idea of a public option, meaning that in a marketplace where there are private insurers, there's also one option would be to choose to be insured by a public agency. 
And I guess I was thinking that I was, you know, reading about some reading some articles and and I guess what I would what I would say is that, you know, from a if you're not an expert in the field, I feel like, you know, I understand how someone would have a strong intuition about universal care. Um, you're not an expert, but you do believe that's the right thing to do. That's the value. That's the goal. But if you're not an expert, I, I, I wonder why people have strong intuitions about the other parts. Because what I want to say is that it's, it's a similar sort of irrationality. Um, once we agree on the goal, the policy should be whatever accomplishes that goal for the, the, in the most efficient way with the least uh, you know, hiccups, uh, a, a, with the least dollars spent. And if that happens to be Medicare for all, so be it. But if it happens to be public option and the competition, so be it. And, you know, is Medicare for all the quote unquote liberal, you know, the most liberal idea? I don't know. Uh, is it the best? I don't know. You know, there could be a lot of unintended consequences. One that people don't talk about is that there's always going to be in any system of healthcare delivery, some people will be dissatisfied with the product. And that's in part because healthcare is this health is this thing that no one can really guarantee or fix. And if you have a single person paying for it, that person is going to be the whipping boy of every criticism. But if you at least have the option to choose among things, you will quickly learn, you know, as the old saying is about, you know, switching jobs, that they're all crappy. You know, they all have <laughs> they all have limitations. And the sooner you realize that it's just as good here as anywhere else, you know, you're going to you're going to feel better about, you know, your situation and the things that frustrate you. What do you think about this as a policy person? You know, um, does it make, you know, is some of this an empirical question and is some of it a value question? And should we separate the two? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the way you've summarized it is pretty closely aligned with my own feelings. I, you know, I think, you know, recognize this is sort of a personal thing. And so, uh, you know, we don't have good studies to say, here's what Medicare for all looks like versus right. something else. But but I think, you know, if if um, if uh, if I was going to advise, you know, and most of this is happening, play, you know, taking place in the among Democratic candidates. And if I was going to Advise them not that anybody's called me up to to for my and ask for my advice. I, I mean, I would push for a language around uh, universal coverage or universal care. I mean, I think that's something where most people um, kind of um, can get behind, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's it's feasible or something approximating that is feasible. Mm -hmm. um, Medicare for all has sort of been the rallying cry. Um, I understand the appeal for that among some, but I also see two issues. One. Um, the feasibility issues are are significant, and so um, so uh, you know there's at least two that are that are monumental. One is um, it means you're taking a, a massive number of people with employer insurance and converting them to something else, and so there's uh, you know people have. They like what they have, even though everything else is crappy, as you say. It's <laughs> right, sort of, yeah. There's a big status quo bias, and so yeah, if I, yeah. you know, if you sort of uh, stand in the corner with a megaphone and say, "You've got," uh, you must switch. You must switch. That's that's tough. And the yeah. other is the way that the um, the finances flow on that. Um, it's it's pretty enormous, and so I think there probably is a world where uh, overall spending on healthcare is lower under Medicare for all. You know, uh, yes, uh, but. But it also means that all this money that flows through um, sort of private stuff that your employer takes care of now comes as a tax through the federal government. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's just sort of an operational detail, but it is a big change it's a, in, it's, in yeah. it's a huge it's amount trillions of, of dollars. It's yeah. trillions of dollars. Yeah. And so, um, so it, that's a tricky thing. And so uh, um, I also sort of feel the same way. I sort of think like there's, there's a lot of traction, a lot of um, – a reason for supporting uh, universal care—it's something that people can get be be uh, get get behind. 
Um, Medicare for all, I'm not necessarily, you know, opposed to it, but I, it sort of seems more fraught politically. The feasibility issues are there. You're going to start to lose some voters if you really, really push on that. Yeah. And I think that, I think you put it well. I mean, you have to think not only about in the long run, would this be the best way to, you know, run a system, but also how can you manage a transition when you're talking about one sixth the economy of a nation? The transition has to be smooth too. It's not just the final steady state. You, yeah. you got to get there. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting in the sense that if we are going to be critical of some political regimes that are so hell-bent on work requirements that they're willing to engage in self-defeating behavior, we must also be critical of people who think Medicare for all is a panacea and don't think that that's also an empirical question that needs empirical scrutiny. And the value in both cases is the value in one case is we want everyone covered. I, I think that's something that, you know, survey after service is what 90% of Americans agree with. And that was the real beauty, I think, of the Affordable Care Act. It may not be, it has its limitations, it has its strengths. But once you pass that bill, very quickly, the, the population comes to believe that this is a value that we all must pursue. And, and that was like the, the, the thing that will live on forever. Uh, but once you have that value, I think you have to kind of do the kind of work that you're doing, um, studying and making sure that these policy things don't have unintended consequences that outweigh whatever potential plausibility they may have had. The work thing, the value is, I guess, that you know people believe that a, a day's work is a, is a virtue. And I guess, you know, to be honest, I, I sympathize with that view because I do believe an honest day's work is a good thing. But then the question is, you know, how do you encourage that in society broadly? Do you just have to pick on the most vulnerable people who are seeking health care to, you know, to seek to do that? Or should there be some other program that seeks to, you know, optimize work across the population? But I do believe that, you know, it's good it's good for people to work in jobs that they enjoy and and maybe not enjoy 100% because nobody enjoys their work that much but you know derive some personal satisfaction from work so i do see that virtue but it's an empirical question how to administer that and this work requirement for medicaid is the most foolish thing i've ever seen <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just total foolish yeah yeah Okay, I want to ask you about something else. You know, you interest me as a person, and here's why. I think that, well, one is you're an economist, but you're also a nice person. So <laughs> There's I, lots of them out there. Well, so you say, but uh, <laughs> my jury is still out on that okay. question. But you're, an, you're a nice economist, uh -huh. and, and I think that's noteworthy. I'm just going to write nice and economist. Okay, and, right. and these two words, I don't always see <laughs> next to each other. But no, I think there was Janet Yellen who was recently quoted as saying that part of the reason why economics as a profession is suffering for, from things like um, a big imbalance of the ratio of the genders in the field yeah. is that the culture of some of these um, uh, academic discussions is is quite inappropriate it's really bad yeah, yeah i mean yeah. it's been a it's sort of been one of the most um so there's a big national uh, uh economics meeting every year and that's that i think the last two years those have been some of the most um 
compelling presentations have been people coming out and showing, you know, economists are good at empirical studies and they show these things where it's like you cannot believe sort of the bias that, that's there. Maybe you can, but it's it's sort of, there's no getting around it. It's not like you've got, you know, some some weak p-value or something like that. I it's see. dramatic. Right. And then people like, um, you know, there's a, there's a really uh, incredible uh, economist named Susan Athey and she talked at the last one. Um, I think she's at Stanford now, and she uh, she said that she had suffered all sorts of, of um, indignities and, and equity issues, and hadn't surfaced them uh, precisely because uh, the her main concern was if I bring this up, people aren't going to take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And so you know, here she is, sort of storming away, mm-hmm. in spite of all the 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 the, um, the the issues that she faced, and and still hesitant to sort of bring them up and say, look, you know, I'm I'm, I'm writing these papers, I'm doing this stuff, and you know, these people are not inviting me to conferences or man, you know, promoting me or whatever. But but she just sort of put that on the wayside because she didn't want it to get in the way of, of her, her advancement. So I think it's um, it's going to take, I, I mean, I'm really glad to see this stuff come out. I'm glad that people are talking about it. But, um, but uh, um, and I think, you know, economics is not alone, but I, I think it's really uh, pretty awful in that discipline. Yeah, that's why. So that's why I do put nice like, <laughs> next to you. Yeah, but I know I think you're right. And I think there is a toll that one, it takes when one is slighted over and over and you keep shoving those feelings down because you because I do think that this person makes a very astute point, which is there will be some who use it to sort of delegitimize um, all of the work that she has done, and she doesn't want that, and so she has to stuff those feelings down, and then at some point, you know, they build up obviously yeah. into a little ulcer, yeah. and then they let loose someday, but hopefully <laughs> not. Okay, but here's what I want to talk to you about. Um, I al- I think that there is this b- strong belief particularly in people who have trained in places like you've trained, like Stanford University, that to be successful in one's career, the best thing you should do when you get your PhD from Stanford is go to the biggest name place you could possibly go to and shine someone's boot for 10 years and join a very established program, even if the job you get is the most lousy job ever, and they call you, I don't know, assistant to the instructor, and you do that for 10 years in the hopes that someday some position, tenure track position will open up. Um, and, And then all you do is you do the projects that you were handed by somebody more senior, you work your way up, but you need that name on your resume, and that's what it takes to be successful. In contrast, you're somebody who moved to a department, emergency medicine, where my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were the only PhD with your training in that program when you joined, and you moved to OHSU, um, which is a, a great place, but you know it's not; it doesn't have the name of Harvard. Um, and and you and you and you went from that position, and then 17 years later, you have set up your own shop. You have a group of health economists that work with you. You have a nice team down there uh, of dedicated, caring people. And so, what I want to suggest is that. Um, that you have actually done something that's very risky. You took a lot of risk in your career. Uh, do you see it that way? Uh, I, I don't necessarily. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, w- I would say this is almost um, I, I, my my path has been strange, and and it wasn't always sort of uh, uh, looking forward and, and thinking about taking taking risks. Um, it. Uh, um, it's worked out. I'm very happy with what I am. I feel really lucky, uh, um, but I don't think there was sort of a uh, a point there where I sort of you know was was thinking about the the, the path you described in terms of going to a high high prestige place versus uh, taking a risk and, and going to a department that that didn't know what to to do with me. I think it was um, you know it was it was uh, uh, um, 
bumbling around a lot and um, it's sort of a, a match of uh, personality and location and, and, and other things. And it wasn't really until I arrived uh, uh, here at OHSU where I started to think about, well, what, what is it that I'm going to do and what's, what's, uh, you know, what's going to be interesting and what's going to make for an interesting career going forward. And then, and then how did you find it, you know, eventually you took the leap and you left the emergency. I mean, you didn't leave, but you Yeah, I haven't left them. In case they're listening, I'm not, I haven't (laughs) left you. (laughs) But you did, um, you know, uh, uh, step to the side a little bit and create your own thing. Yeah. How many years into it was that? So that was, so the Center for Health Systems Effectiveness uh, uh, was started in 2011 and, um, and again, I think this is one that, that was sort of uh, um, wasn't me kind of identifying something I wanted to do and, and going for it. It was sort of something that was put in my lap, uh, I would say. I, and so the kind of the, what, what happened here was that there was uh, some leadership at OHSU who thought, well, there's a lot of interesting policy stuff happening here, mm-hmm. but not one cohesive center. And uh, they asked me to sort of start there. I didn't know exactly what I was doing at the time. I didn't even think it would be oh, focused on quantitative that's work. That's like herding cats. So, so, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I gave it a shot. Uh, it, we got lucky early on. It sort of uh, timed up nicely with this uh, CCO um, transition that was happening in Oregon. So there was a good rationale for creating a place to study that. Um, but it really, I think, until uh, just um, uh, it sort of moved forward. It wasn't until just, uh, I'd say, um, two years ago that I really sat down and thought uh, long and hard about what what is the vision for the center and what does it mean to have a vision. And mm-hmm. so, um, mm-hmm. so I invested a lot into uh, thinking about, you know, how do you develop a vision? How do you get buy-in from the people? And that was new to me. And that sort of, you know, I think I went into academics because I liked the idea of, you know, sitting alone in an office and, and, and working on a computer mm-hmm. and sort of managing people and articulating a vision is a different skill set. It's a different, yeah. Um, it didn't come naturally to me, but I think, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of work, uh, um, some really great input from my team, and uh, and I'm really, uh, uh, really happy with where the center is, and, and I like that activity and uh, as being a manager or a leader. And and um, have finally and, and come what around. Your, what is your vision? What is the mission well, statement? Well, so it's really, uh, it's long. <laughs> um, it has to do, uh, it's really around Medicaid and, and trying to sort of uh, make, our, you know, contribute to what we can to how do you develop a high-value Medicaid uh, uh, system. So that's with, you know, some recognition of we're doing some work in Medicare, changes for payment, that sort of feeds into that. But it's mostly around Medicaid. Um, but a lot of it is around the, the values of the center. And I think... Um, you know, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a, it's, we're about 20 people. I think the culture there is really strong. We've really tried to, uh, I think, create a place where uh, everybody can um, uh, be a leader, sort of achieve what they, with the practice at the top of their license, I guess is what you physicians say. Mm-hmm. And so not try to have too much hierarchy and uh, not caught, get caught up in, in uh, too much in degrees or seniority, but really sort of uh, allow people to blossom and excel where they want to. And so that, that was a change for me where I think I felt for a while that managing or directing a center was, uh, it felt like a lot of budgets and, uh, and meeting with senior people and administrative types of things. Um, and I'm only, you know, uh, marginally interested in that, but sort of the idea of creating a space where uh, 20 or 25 or however big we get, smart people can really um, uh, kind of achieve the best that they can. I, I feel like I've got boundless energy for that. And I know you have a, you know, I've, I've talked to many people in, who work with you, and I know they're, you, you've, you've assembled a, an excellent team. But That's I, true. Yeah, it's been, uh, I, I can only take partial credit for that, but they're great. But I guess I, I will 
reiterate my belief that <laughs> I do think what you know I do think you did something very risky and I think it you know you, it's paid off I mean I think you're uh, I mean you know you're very successful at what you do and you do a very good job of it and you know listeners can just go back and read like your last 10 papers because I think they're stellar and you know the things where I, I the only reason I'm able to have this conversation with you is that I cheated obviously and I read your JAMA paper from 2016 and I read your paper in New England Journal and I've read some of your work so that's the only reason I know anything about this topic um, but I do think it's risky and the other thing I think about is this idea of you know in 2018 I see so many people talking about work-life balance and and some of what they say I think is cliched and they're just kind of using it as an empty talking point. And I don't think they really have embodied it. And here's why. Because at the same time, I talk to so many people who are thinking about career decisions and they always ask me what my thought is. And I will say that there's a sizable chunk of people who literally take nothing into account other than the, the, the prestige name of the institution. That's the only deciding factor. And once they, they then have made the decision, then they think about work-life balance. And, and, and then I want to say that like, but but you, as you said in the very beginning of this podcast, you decided that you like living on the West Coast because you like cycling and you like going to and you like skiing. And those are like built into, you know, your whole career arc. Where can I have this this life that I like and do really good work, even if that means that I'm taking a risk because there's not going to be a senior health economist to pull me under their wing and, you know, basically help, you know, help you do all that stuff early on in your career. Um but I think that's what true work-life balance is, is actually all those decisions. It's not that, you know, I've decided I'm going to go to place X, and that's the absolute biggest name I can get in. Now let me build in the work-life balance. It's it's asking, like, what, what do I care about as a person, and where is the place that I can do some of what I want to do, hopefully as well as I can do it, but also be able to do all the other things in life that I want to do. What do you think about that? I think that sounds great. You should be writing my my uh, CV for me. I like, <laughs> I like the way it sounds. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's um, there are there's a lot of uh, advantages that come from a prestige uh, place on the East Coast, um, but it comes with its own uh, its own trappings and and pressure and and baggage, and uh, that may um, that's great for some people but not not great for 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 everybody and I, I you know and I think um, uh, you know I, I I hope that that's recognized that that sort of the 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 institution doesn't take on too much weight when people are are looking at at papers or presentations or things like that I think it's still it still does um, but uh, you know um, people like you are, are, are helping to change that well yeah I think it, it still does in the sense that a lot of people would just say oh a Harvard research study suggests yes. that eating nuts will keep colon <laughs> cancer at bay. Right. Okay, but then there be, but these days because of social media, a lot of people are going to read that and then they're going to conclude that I don't care if it came from Harvard or it came off, you know, the uh, a bus stop written in graffiti. Yeah. This is a garbage piece of, you know, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's interesting that academics who uh, think about risky concepts are they themselves so averse to risk? Um, you know, it's a it's a very non-risk seeking economists who who deal with high risk, uh, you know, theories. They career wise, they're they're anti-risk. But all right, I, I'm beating that to death. I want to ask you about your paper, difference in difference. Yeah, difference in difference. I hear that a lot. Right. I hear actually, there's a few words I hear a lot. Instrumental variable. Yeah. <laughs> difference in difference. Yeah. Regression discontinuity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are all good ones. Those are all good ones. And uh, and um, uh, natural experiment. Uh, and what's the other thing that they've been saying lately? Oh, how um, 
unless unless it meets some of these criteria, it's not causal. You yeah. Know? But yeah. but when you do meet these criteria, then obviously it is causal. Yeah. Causal yeah. Is, is causality is guaranteed. Yes. Okay. So I don't know where do you so, want to dive well, in. Well, I'll set you at ease. Ease. So yeah. I think you're you know you're you're uh, my my shorthand version for you is that the gold standard is randomized controlled trials and and then everything. You else agree? Goes. Yes. So well, I I will say that's the, what, the, so now you're smart and nice economist. <laughs> so so I think that's that's right. I think that the um, all of these other things uh, you can work really hard, um, but the, they're tricky. And I think that the um, and so the the ones that you are, so, and I think you know a lot of these are coming from economists who are dealing with with messy data and they. Um, in the right situations, they can be really uh, powerful. So instrumental variables, regression, discontinuity, difference in difference. Mm -hmm. um, let me pause and sort of describe the difference in difference setup for okay. your, your listeners. Yeah. But because uh, it's really easy to 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 see why it might be powerful. Essentially, what you're doing is you're looking at um, in the simplest case, uh, two periods before and after a policy or an intervention, and two groups: one group that gets treated and one group that doesn't. And so the difference in difference just means you're taking the difference of uh, before and after for the treated group and before and after for the comparison group, and then subtracting those. And so what that means is if there's some sort of trend over time, cost is going up, uh, you're trying to pull that out with a comparison group and just isolate the impact of the policy. And mm -hmm. so it's really simple. Setting it up in statistics mm -hmm. is really easy. Um, and uh, and and that's all, 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 all. That's that's great. the The challenge is that um, it's so simple that there's some there's a few underlying uh, assumptions that um, often are not tested or if tested and adjusted for or not adjusted for properly. And so that's what this paper that um, Stefan Lindner, who's at CHSE, and I wrote. And and sort of the notion there is that. Um, that all of us, and so these difference in different studies have sort of proliferated. Really, they're 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 not that that kind of. If you look at the literature, there weren't that many studies. Maybe you know, 20 years ago, and now it's like you can't, you can't. It's sort of the bread and butter oh, yeah. of you natural experiments. It, yeah. right, so, so it's sort of like that's all I do. Um, you and do a study on the difference in difference of the difference in difference. Right. Well, there is a difference yeah. in difference in difference estimator, which is a triple D estimator. A triple D. Yes. Oh, so, God. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but but so we all do these things. We get our data. These are observational studies. Um, I, I've been there a million times where you wait and you wait and you wait, and then you, the first thing you do is you want to see. Um, before and and so I described a real simple pre-post, but a lot of times these are multiple years or multiple quarters, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You want to see leading up to the intervention period a certain did, trend. Did your comparison group basically have the same trend as your as your uh, your treated group? Uh, and if not, then the comparison may not be good. Comparison. Right. And right. so okay. you 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 hope and you pray and you hope and you pray and then you you plot it and guess what? It doesn't work. And uh. so then you start doing the statistical uh, 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 machinations to to make these things get closer. And so there have been a lot of papers that basically say, look, if the things aren't parallel, you can do blank. And so blank might be um, you do propensity score, uh, uh, some covariate adjustment, or some something. sort of covariate adjustment. And so what? Um, but you can you have unlimited multiplicity. You can just pe pick and choose covariates until they parallel. Right. Yeah. 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 So um, so what we found is that the, and so there have been a couple recommendations on. Um, uh, you know, if the trends aren't parallel, then then understand. You know, look at the trends for each of your individual uh, uh, subjects, and then try and match on trends. And we found that that is is not such a good thing. And so, mm. it turns out that there's sort of a lot of things that um, that you start with a difference in difference, which is simple. It doesn't quite go the way, and you take a really intuitive way of sort of pulling these trends together, and it sort of creates bias where you would have been better off doing nothing. And so this is sort of this theme that's come out. So there's another paper that was published by uh, Daw and Hatfield that kind of did a great job of looking at this, and there was sort of debate back and forth. This is in the Journal of Health Services Research. 
Um, but I think kind of what we're seeing in difference in differ the difference in difference literature right now is something that looked so stable and so great. Um, when you start peeling apart and kind of looking at the assumptions that these little adjustments that probably made sense are not justified and they introduce bias and it's not such a and, and so really getting a good difference in difference estimator um, means uh, several things that we hadn't really factored in going back a few years and so there's probably a bunch of published different diff studies that don't hold up so you're right. We shouldn't do anything but randomized uh, uh, control <laughs> trials. And so the difference in different studies, I think, are fraught with, with issues. I think we're getting better at understanding them. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, um, people like me would go out of business if I was confined right. only to, uh, to doing randomized control trials. But I think what we're seeing is that something, the instrumental variables and regression discontinuity have another level of complexity, and so they're even more fraught. But even something that um, a lot of us think is pretty simple, diff and diff. Uh, when you start to unpack it, it's like uh, it's it gets trickier than than we thought it was going to be. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, um, I guess I guess one thought would be if the slopes aren't parallel in the unadjusted look at that the first look, then that maybe tell you that it's not an appropriate comparison. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but then, what do you do? Yeah, exactly. You, I mean, the paper. <laughs> I mean, right. So then, then, it's then be a paper. Yeah, right. So or, or sort of like I mean, I, I think there's sort of the the you know the, the career part of the paper. What do I do if I can't write a paper? But but also sort of like well, I've got I got all this data. I'm trying to inform policy somehow. What's the best I can show here? And so that's sort of where the field needs to go. Is like, look, this you know we don't have a perfect thing. We can't tell you that policy X generates Y, but we can say under you know these conditions, we think this is sort of the the relative range. So so I think that's where people have to go. I see. Yeah. And I think um, you follow this uh, hospital readmission debate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that could be a course unto itself there. I know. I'm thinking about getting some people to discuss it. Yeah. Because um, I think it's fascinating that when you get um, different groups with perhaps slightly different priors and different— All good groups, too. All good groups. Yeah. But different priors and different skin in the game, uh, reaching divergent estimates, and, and you get—you know, you, I, I guess you get a lot of noise there. Um, I guess one of the things I think about, obviously, with prospective and retrospective looks at the data, um, and and one of the virtues of randomization, obviously, is, you know, the stated virtue of randomization is that it minimizes confounding. It doesn't eliminate it, obviously, but it minimizes it, and at least there are even unknown confounders could be equally balanced between the groups. That's the stated thing. But one of the things that doesn't get stated as often, which I do think is a virtue of randomization, is that you limit the number of times someone can play with the data, which is not limited in retrospective looks, where there can be 20 groups that care a lot about Medicaid and the Oregon decision, or what Mississippi has done, or what some state did with Medicaid. And there can be 20 groups that probe that relationship with slightly different data sets and slightly different hypotheses and assumptions. Um, and 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 the ones that end up publishing are the ones that are able to, with adjustment, get the get the two curves to be parallel, um, that are able to get a p-value less than 0.05, that are able to have a narrative that they can sell to the journal, and 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 that process is is also one of the pitfalls, I think. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think it's a lot. You know, there's sort of this movement towards uh, getting some of these protocols up on uh, uh, clinicaltrials.gov yeah. or whatever, which I think is good. But I also think it's um, it's still not the randomized trial uh, uh, standard because, for example, this this difference in difference thing. So I could write out, and I we try to do this. I could write out, you know, to my team, we're going to do this study. It's going to be difference in difference, and um, and and then let's say we we step one is are the are the trends parallel? Um, if yes, proceed. If not, 
let's do these things. And then it does become a, there is sort of this art and science thing there of the trends aren't parallel. Let's start looking at it. You know, do we look at, you know, maybe they're, they're parallel for men, but not for women. And mm -hmm. so the analysis focuses. And it's really hard to sort of articulate all of those things because you do begin to learn with the data. But as you learn with the data and move forward, I mean, I think there's implicit and explicit yeah, uh, biases yeah, and yeah. issues that you introduce to it. So, um, uh, I, I think it's um, it will be hard to even though we're pushing for submitting protocols and things like that. I think it's you know the the, the observational stuff. Um, there's always going to be more opportunities to play and publish, play with the data and publish what the results Prior that you want. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, this has been really interesting to me. Um, I know we have to, we've actually talked quite a long time. It's it's uh, actually slightly over an hour. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Time time flies. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. I guess I wanted to, to you know, thank you for doing this interesting work. And I think um, uh, I think we're fortunate uh, to, to be in Oregon, actually, because it, we've been sort of on the leading edge of Medicaid. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, what doesn't get stated explicitly in some of these conversations is, you know, why is this, like, such an important thing to study? I think it's a, such an important thing to study because we're literally talking about um, – the most vulnerable people in the population, pregnant women, children, and people who are people who are disabled and people who don't make a lot of money. And we're talking about um, perhaps the one commodity that we as a society agree um, that should be broadly accessible when you need it, which is the access to health care. Uh, and we're talking about how to do that um, as well as we possibly could. And, and that to me is an, obviously an empirical question. Um, it's an empirical question because Nobody's philosophy can, at the outset, tell you the optimal way to do it. There's no theory of government or theory of economics that is smarter, that is able to know all of the unanticipated, uh, you know, effects a policy will have. So it has to be studied empirically um, by people who are open-minded um, to, you know, and and critical thinkers. Uh, and that's why I think what you do is so important because uh, we need people like you to do this because it's such an important thing you're tasked with doing and there is no substitute. You know, if this work is not done, then it's just going to be sort of a debacle. Um, and I think the problem in society is when people put their ideology or philosophy or, um, you know, a preconception above empiricism. And, and that really irks me. And I think it can cut in both directions as I, you know, I hope we try to frame. Um, I don't know. What do you think? About yeah, that? I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, we're, at our very core, we're trying to be objective about this, and um, uh, you know, I think uh, obviously care a lot about low-income uh, uh, populations, vulnerable populations. But you know, if uh, if the CCOs are trying a, an intervention and it's not working, I mean, I think uh, uh, we all want to tell them that and, yeah. and say, you know, look, this is not the best way to take care of this population, and uh, and let's you know, let's work on finding something that that, that works. So. Um, uh, yeah, it's. I think uh, that's a great summary. I think you know the other thing I'd add. The, the reason that one of the, another reason that Oregon is a nice place to do these studies is it's sort of the right size. You know, if it was bigger, mm. it'd be sort of it'd be difficult to get your hands around. If it was smaller, nobody would care. But it's sort of a great size to do a lot of this work, and um, and they really are uh, uh, pushing the boundary on this. I think you know I always say that that we think of ourselves as this. Uh, little state over in the in the corner, but when you go to health policy conferences, it really has sort of a disproportionate profile. Mm -hmm. People really always interested, um, always getting calls from people in D.C. asking what's happening in Oregon. So uh, it's an important state when it comes to to Medicaid and health policy. Well, I think that's well put. 
Dr. John McConnell, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule and coming on the plenary yeah, session. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. This is the big stage. <laughs> it, it doesn't get bigger than this. <laughs> well, thanks for doing it. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>